Well, hello everyone, and welcome back to Page Chewing uh, with the wonderful Steve Talks Books on his channel. Um, our colleague Taylor, unfortunately, couldn't be with us today, so Steve and I are holding it on the fort. Uh, we do have a fabulous guest, um, one that I'm sure a lot of people have been anticipating uh, once we start announcing uh, who is coming on for this episode, and that would be uh, the incredible Stefan Arian, uh, author Hi. of The Coward. <laughs> <laughs> How you doing, guys? How are you doing, Stephen? Thanks so much for coming. My pleasure. Thanks for thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this. We're 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 honored. We're honored. Um, you have a lot of uh, followers and fans, I'm sure, that will be tuning in here um, <laughs> for a variety of reasons, not just uh, for uh, the great books that you write. Uh, the coward being a one one of my favorites. Yeah, there we go. Well done. <laughs> um, and congratulations on the release of The Warrior, which I Thank see you. just over your shoulder there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, so along with the writing, uh, a lot of people, including myself and Steve, uh, we love watching your YouTube channel and um, you know <laughs> all the all the wonderful advice you dispense uh, about uh, publishing, especially uh, traditional publishing versus self-publishing and mm. pros and cons and trying to um you know eradicate some of the the more egregious myths out there especially regarding uh traditional publishing so mm -hmm. um but uh i was i i i have to start this off with a brain question so what is the most silly outrageous thing you've ever heard in regards to specifically traditionally publishing that just doesn't happen oh wow there's been a couple of real real gems in the last few weeks actually um the most recent one was only a few days ago on twitter and i was trying to find out who who posted it they said um i don't know why people are surprised that when you get traditionally published your agent and your editor tells you what to write that that was what someone said and i'm thinking so well that's ridiculous that's that's so 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 beyond reality it shows you that someone was just saying, oh, that's why indie's best. You can do what you want. And I thought that I always say this. I'm never in favor of one or the other. I talk about traditional because that's what I've been doing since 2015. So that's what I know. But I've got friends who are self or, you know, indie published. And I, I talk to them. I get their advice and I've had them on, on the, you know, on the YouTube channel as well. When we talk about it. So but saying that your editor and your agent tells you what to write is ridiculous. It's just it's crazy. It's insane. <laughs> And sometimes I swear on my channel and uh, I say, you know, I'm going to include some salty language because I'm so angry at these people making stuff up. So I'm wearing the merch as well. There you go. Nice. Oh, salty. We get go. salty Stephen today. Yes. <laughs> I'll try to keep it non-salty, but there you go. Yeah, but we yeah. don't want to affect Steve's monetization there. No, <laughs> no sorry. It's, it's, it's pennies. It's pennies. <laughs> But just some of these things that people come up with, I just am baffled of why they think that that's true. Like who they've been speaking to that said that. And you can just go on Twitter and ask any of the authors there. And there's a hundred of them and they'll answer it. And they'll be like, nope, that's not true. That's not true. So, yeah, I guess there wouldn't really be a need for writers if, uh, if agents and publishers could just write everything and put it out. So, yeah, makes yeah. sense to me. <laughs> they just say, go ahead and do what you want. They were like, well, no, they, they they have input, but it's your story to tell. It's your book to tell. You know, they're there to help you and guide you. That's why they're there. That's part of the process. But they don't tell you what to write. 
there's uh, recently been a big uh, article circulating in the last few days about uh, the uh, the revenues regarding um, traditionally published books and how uh, the vast preponderance of them uh, don't, uh, according to this this article, don't don't seem to to make a lot of money, uh, never seem to earn out, um, and that uh, traditional publishers, according to the article, again, I'm just I'm just stating what what I yeah. my rec my recollection of what the article said, that traditional publishers spend a very tiny fraction of their overall revenues uh, on on actually marketing and pushing their their writers' books. Um, so obviously a lot of the feedback on Twitter was, you know, it would seem that they can spend a lot more, um, which, you know, seemed reasonable based on on I, I don't remember what the numbers were. But at the same time, you know, as, as someone who's not inside the industry, is not traditionally published, is self-published, and as someone who has a lot of friends, you know, both sides, you know, do, do, can you tell us anything about that? What, what if you've seen that article and what you, you think about that specifically? So the, um, some of the facts in the article weren't, they didn't give the whole story. Um, it was sort of saying that most traditionally published debut books only sell like 12 copies or something and saying the and that wasn't true what they were talking about was uh, existing titles or previous books and when you averaged it all out and they're saying no no it's saying most and that's like so that wasn't true when they're talking about pr and promotion every author wants to have more money poured into their pr they would all like it um when you get the really big boys and girls at a, one of the larger traditional publishing houses in science fiction fantasy specifically, they obviously put a lot more money into those because they will sell well, they'll make a lot of money, and then that money then trickles back into the publisher, which they can then use for, for other things. So it's, it's almost like a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, but by the same token, they still have to put money into their other mid-list authors like myself and others. So it, it depends upon the publisher, really. So it, how much money they put in, how much effort they put in, depends on how big the list that they have. So some some publishers, you know, have, let's say they publish 100 books a year, and maybe five of them are the really big ones. They're probably going to get a lot more PR because they will really sell and shift numbers. But they still got to focus on the other kind of, you know, 95 in that year because they want them to do well. Some of them will do brilliant. Some of them will just set fire and they don't know why and they can't explain it and some you know will just sell okay um so it, it varies from publisher to publisher every author is always whinging that they don't get enough myself included um <laughs> but my publisher has been brilliant they've worked really really hard angry robot have been phenomenal on on the coward and the warrior um, it's a very small team and they've just absolutely you know busted them a hump trying to get the book out there, promoting it and social media events. Um, when I did the special editions, um, the, the person in charge of PR and promotions, she on her day off, she came to the warehouse where I was signing the like 1100 books and sat with me the entire day and stayed with me. She didn't have to, she didn't have to come at all, but she came on a day off. So they're really committed to the authors. And that's what I really appreciate about working with my publisher. Um, I like I like the team. They're all fantastic, uh, and they're really good people that really care about what they do. That's the other thing. I know that they're interested in these books. They're invested in these books, and they actually read them as well, and they get you know very passionate about them. Um, and that that translates when they're talking about it, and they put it into the PR, and it goes out there. You can feel it. I think. 
Um, but would we like more? Yeah, sure. We'd all love more money. But then again, it's not an infinite pot of money. It has to be kind of divvied up amongst all of the authors. So traditionally published authors do have to do some PR for themselves. They do have to be active up to a point. Um, you don't have to come in with a large following. That's another urban myth that I've kind of dispelled. Like someone says, well, you must have 10,000 followers on Twitter and you must have this and you must have that in order for a, a, an agent to pick you up and then for order for a publisher to pick you up. And that's just nonsense. That's not true at all. Um, it's always about the work. If you have a million YouTube followers, is that handy? Absolutely. Are you going to get a million sales? No, because not every one of your followers is going to buy the book. You, well, you'd know this. You've both got YouTube channels. You've both done stuff on YouTube. If you've got a thousand followers, does every single video have a, has a thousand views? No. Does it have 500 views every single time? No. And it's the same with marketing and PR. It's a fraction. It's like Google AdWords. You pour money in and a fraction of what you put in will actually put their hand in the pocket and buy the thing. On social media, people will tweet and re-like and, you know, share. Brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. Have they actually bought it? Some have. All of them? No. <laughs> so it's always a gamble. It's always a gamble. So what, and, and what I love about, about you too, Stephen, is you're so passionate about the industry and you care so much about your product and you take so much pride in it. And, you know, you take so much pride in being an author, period, irrespective yeah. of being just yourself published. What prompted you to start a channel to try and dispel these, <laughs> these myths and, and the, 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 the erroneous stuff of like, what, what, what got under, what, what, what was the little bug that got under your skin <laughs> to, to like, just, just, I gotta, I gotta do something about this. Brace yourself. <laughs> no. Um, I think it was just an accumulation of, of things. I just kept seeing people spouting stuff off on, on social media in particular, saying stuff about traditional publishing that I knew wasn't true. And when you go into YouTube and you search for authors giving advice, there are a majority, I would say, are self and indie published, telling people how it works, how to do it, covers, all of that. And it's brilliant because you need that. It's it's a whole new set of skills you have to learn to wade in. Like if I wanted to start doing self-publishing now, I'd go to YouTube and start looking at it because I've never done it in my life. If I want to become a hybrid author, I've got a ton of stuff to learn and it's brilliant. But if you are interested in going down the traditional publishing route and you go on YouTube, there's not nearly as many. There are some great ones out there, some really, really good ones that I have now spoken to and I've done some collabs with, um, like Alexa Dunn and Michelle Susterman and a bunch of other ones out there that you know I haven't connected with yet, but I'm aware of. And But there's not nearly as many. So there are a lot of voices kind of shouting about self-pub and indie pub, which is good. But then some of them are really biased and they start saying, this is, you know, you should do this because it's much better and traditional publishing is terrible. And let me tell you the reasons why. And they're like, well, you give the pros and cons of both, that's fine. But if you're pushing someone towards self-pub or the worst thing is when they say traditional publishing is terrible, it's awful. But if you do self-publishing, oh, I've got a service that I can help you with and I'll just charge you, you know, anywhere between you know, a few thousand dollars. But it's totally worth it. And, you know, that's why you should come with us. It's nothing to do with I'm just like, come on, there's got to be someone saying the truth and actually saying, no, this is the reality. So I've had some brilliant videos and some of my most popular videos have been based upon me searching and finding people spouting nonsense and then doing a rebuttal. <laughs> so I've had great fun. They just keep putting that nonsense. But if there's too much of it, people will start believing it. So I'm trying to dispel some of that as much as I can. Uh, so at least people have 
all of the information, but they have the right information and then they can make an informed decision. That's what I want. Wow. That's extremely admirable. And we're grateful for you. Uh, It's an uphill struggle. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are grateful for it because, you know, um, along with all this, we all look at ourselves as authors, whether we're traditionally published or self-published. We're all colleagues, YouTubers, everyone in the writing community where, you know, I think, you know, we've talked about this before, Steve and I and, and various guests that probably one of the most harmonious communities on social media you know, I mean, yeah, every every community has their issues, but I think we're pretty collegial for the most part, really supportive, helping each other. And what you're doing is help so many people, especially, as you said, potentially uh, avoiding people being scared off from querying, trying to get an agent and trying to get a book deal. Because, you know, increasingly uh, at the same time, and, and again, you can address this, this is just, again, my impression as, as someone who is not traditionally published, that it does seem to be getting more challenging to get an agent and to get a book deal um you know in the new uh landscape and perhaps self-publishing has affected that i'm not sure but um you know um what do you think about 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 chances and in terms of you know uh do you encourage people to take the traditional route Um, or is it more about finding what route is best uh, for you i guess individually as an author yeah it's it's probably the latter it's finding what works for you as an author like i know there are some authors that want the absolute control of everything and if they go down the self-published route then you get to pick your editor um i don't get to pick who my editor is you know my the publisher assigns me an editor and i work with that person so you could so it's, it's all about control it's a case of if you self-publish you do everything you pick everything uh, and you do make all the decisions yourself um, you have to learn all the skills. You have to do all of that and invest in it because obviously you have to put time, but also money into it. Um, and you have less time to do other things. So we were talking, me and Steve, just before we started saying there's lots of other things going on in our lives as well as stuff we do on YouTube. So it's finding time for everything. I would rather spend the time writing and use the other time for other things. I don't want to spend time learning these skills to self-publish at this stage. Back when I was starting, when I started querying, self-publishing wasn't really a thing, not nearly what it is now. It's it's radically transformed. Um, before, it was only sort of vanity press where you'd send your book to a company, they'd give it a cursory edit, they'd print it and just send it back to you, and that was it. And then you'd sell it hand to mouth, you know, going on the streets basically and selling it. Um, it's totally changed now. It's much more professional. It's so many great editors out there and cover designers and you know, some amazing artwork I've seen, but it's about, do you want to spend the time and the money yourself doing all of these things? Or do you want to go down the traditional publishing route? So I don't know anything about um, contracts. I'm not a legal expert. If So when I got my contract from my publisher, my agent walked me through it. She explained all of it. It was then still my choice to, if I wanted to go and hire a legal representative to have a second opinion to talk it through. I didn't. Other people I know have. It's not a problem. You can then go back to your agent and say, I'm not happy with this. I'm not happy with that. And then they can try and work with the publisher to fix it if you want to do those things. But she talked, you know, so that's something else I would have to go and learn and hire a legal person to work with me to do that if I wanted to. And I could I could do that. Um, but that was a case of, right, I don't want to spend time doing that. I don't want to be working how to distribute the book, getting a cover design, 
um, working on the ebook, getting an audio book produced, because there again, that's another another cost and another finding a studio and all this kind of stuff. I thought all that other time, I want to be focusing on doing other writing, but equally spending time with my friends, my family, doing other things, you know? Um, so it's a case of control, I'd say, uh, money, time. Um, but it, it shouldn't be, if you can't get traditionally published, then you go self-published. It shouldn't be a fallback. Like, oh, well, I tried it. It didn't work. Therefore, I'll self-publish it. it. It should be the choice that you make of what's going to be right for you going forward. And you do get hybrid authors, of course. They're a lot, they're a lot more common these days than they used to be. But it shouldn't be like, well, I tried that and it didn't work. Therefore, they don't know what they're talking about. I'm going to do it myself. You know, I've, I've seen that as another kind of myth I want to dispel from people. It's, it's, a, it's a choice you have to make, an informed choice, I keep saying. But, you know, that's what it is. Do you, do you feel that um, the message to people who have been unsuccessful in uh, querying to either find an agent or have managed to find an agent but have not landed a deal and it's, it's taken some time, potentially years, um, is, is essentially your advice, more encouragement to like, keep trying, um, you know, or is it, you know, explore other options? My, if they want to go down the traditional publishing route and they still want to do it and they get rejected or they get an agent and it doesn't go anywhere, my advice is to keep going. So my debut came out in 2015. It took me over 10 years of querying to get an agent. So I started, I'm trying to think when it's when I started. I think I sent my first um, agent query out in probably 2000, thereabouts. And I got my agent in 2013. So yeah, about 13 years. And that was writing a book, sending it out, or editing it, working, getting friends to read it, working on it, sending it out, getting rejected, having a cry, having a few drinks, <laughs> have a rest start the next book and do it again. And I just kept doing it over and over and over again and kept persisting and kept pushing because I wanted to be traditionally published. Um, other people I know have got an agent, including my agent. She has had some clients who she's liked their work. They've picked up the book. They've worked on it together. She has sent it out to the publishers. And for a myriad of reasons, the publishers have said no, and it hasn't gone anywhere. They have then said, okay, I'll then work on something else. And then they've tried again, working on it with the agent, working on it, and then sending it out. So some of her clients have been published on their first book that went to her, like me, and some have gone on their second or even third book. So I spoke to Andrea Stewart, Boneshard daughter, Boneshard emperor. She has the same agent as me, which I didn't realize until we started talking. And it wasn't her first book that was accepted by publishers so she had an agent and she was working with the same agent as me for several years but the first book for whatever reason it went out and it could have been there's something too similar in the market at the moment it could have been there's a saturation of stuff in the moment and therefore it'll get lost in the shuffle it could have been that the editors for personal reasons when they read it said it just it doesn't speak to me they could have then taken it internally to the, the sales department the, you know the accounts and finance and they've all gone i don't think it's marketable like we can pour all this money in, but we're not going to get our investment back. Therefore, we don't want to take it to the market. You know, there's so many other things, timing and luck. Um, but it's about, it, it's, if you get rejected by an agent, my suggestion is always to start work on the next book. Because even if the agent says yes, 
and even if you get a book deal, at some point down the line, they're going to turn around to you and say, so what are you working on next? What are you doing? How's it going? Because being an author isn't, apart from a few exceptions, yes, there are a few, like, you know, Harper Lee, yes, To Kill a Mockingbird, and I'm sure you can name some other ones who've written two books or three books and they've made their life and their money and their career off it. But most of us, it's producing a body of work over the course of many years, you know, several series in different worlds or connected series or just exploring all sorts of weird and cool different ideas and playing around with things. Whereas if you, if you get rejected and an agent says, I, I quite like what you've done, but this isn't quite right. Have you started working on something else? And you're like, no. But if you say, I'm actually 40,000 words into a book about so-and-so, they might be like, oh, that sounds quite good. Send it send it over when, when you're done. And then you've got a connection and it shows that you're, you're taking this seriously. It show, shows that you're actually going to progress and take it as a as a, a potential career, or if not, you know, a part-time career for most of us. Um, so always start on something new. Take a break, have a cry, have a holiday, <laughs> recharge, and then start again. Wow, I just I just commend you so much for the perseverance, right? The the the. I mean, I I don't know if if I would have, uh, you know, kept at it. Um, you know, if I would have had to stick to this to, to keep going after so long, but obviously it's paid off and you're very successful, but you know, kudos to you, man. I, I, I don't know. I, I know I couldn't do it now. I mean, look at these gray hairs. I, I, I <laughs> have... oh, gee, but I've got some gray in here. The sun, uh, <laughs> light hides it. So don't worry. I'm older than I look. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, that's, that's fantastic. So, so Stephen, do you think that when you're looking at the industry and you've seen you've seen you've been around long enough in in the game to see self-publishing become this thing now is the proliferation of self is it is it in response to the fact that it is more difficult to get a traditional contract people just saying well i'm going to do it myself is it something else like what what's made this the self-publishing thing such a thing now where you have these extremely successful uh, self-published authors alongside extremely successful um, you know, tradition. Like, what's what's like? How has this become like that? There's there's so many factors, and I'm probably going to miss some. Some of it will be speed. People read a lot more than they used to. I think um, technology has radically changed. That I can go on my phone, go on my Kindle, press a button, and I have a book in like five seconds. You go back. You know, I'm I'm old enough. You can't tell. To, to remember the world before the internet. I grew up before the internet, remember? If I wanted a book, I walked to the library and I checked out a bunch of books. And I read them and I went home. I wanted more. I went back to the library again and that was it. You know, TV wasn't on demand. Anything wasn't on demand. There wasn't a 24-hour news cycle. Shops weren't open seven days a week when I was growing up. Now, I can go to the shop anytime and, you know, buy some milk and whatever. It's So I think, I think that's one factor. Okay. I think <laughs> I think that's kind of changed. Um, so it's made it easier. I think people want to read a lots of different stories, and sometimes traditionally published authors, uh, sorry, um, larger publishers won't take a risk on it because they because it, it's a bigger gamble. But the audience is there, and they don't always get it right. And someone will put out a self-published book, and it does really really well, and it finds its audience. And some have been then made offers to go to the traditional publishing route. And some have just said, I'm okay doing this. I'm all right with what I'm doing. I'll stay where I am. And they keep going that way. Uh, you get the hybrid authors who go back and forth. You get 
um, um, self-published authors who now have literary agents um, like Ben Galley, um, like uh, uh, I'm trying to think of some other ones that have been announced more recently. Um, oh, I'll think of it in a minute. Um, and now they self-publish their books in English, but their agent is handling international rights. So when they, you know, published in, in Brazil and Spain and France and all the rest of it and those kind of things. I think it it might be more difficult now to get a traditional publishing deal, I think. But there are also more agents than when I first started. There are more people willing to take on science fiction and fantasy than there were when I first started too, because it's become incredibly popular in pop culture. Um, there's lots of other things I'm, I know I have missed that explained why this is kind of proliferation of, of self-publishing. Um, but some people just come up with some really amazing ideas that are really marketable. And the publisher's like, I'm not sure, because it takes a long time for it to go through the machine to be traditionally published, whereas someone can get it edited, get some art done, turn it around, put it out in what three four months maybe and the book is out there but equally if something's wrong they can fix it on the fly and the ebook's back out there and but then they again they haven't printed like you know ten thousand copies that are sat in the warehouse if someone goes oh this is this is mistaken this is mistaken you, you've got a stock of like 50 like ah right sell those ones fix it print another batch of 50 and then off you go again and you can't do that with the traditional publishing you can fix the ebooks um, you could fix the, the physical book once you run down the stock and on the next print run, you can fix it. So I think self-publishing and, and indie publishing is a lot more agile. You can produce books a lot faster. Um, you can take more risks um, and, and hope you can find an audience. But as you, as you, I'm sure you both know, it's not always guaranteed that you get an audience. You could sell 12 copies, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows how it's going to be? It's a massive gamble. It's always a gamble. Yeah, it's scary, scary one too. I can I can attest to that as a self published sure author. Tell it, me is, about it. It, is, yeah. it is scary um, to come on without um, the benefit of having a publisher, a traditional publisher with all that 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 clout um, behind them, and say, "Please buy my book," and uh, you know, feel like you're shouting at the void, right? And um, to have to go to a major bookstore and petition um, to get to get a consignment deal, to get them to stock your book on their shelves, right. um, to keep your book on their shelves. Like that's all, you know, that, that's that a lot of luck, a lot of hard work, obviously, and traditional publishers, authors work hard as well. But yeah, it, it is a lot of work and you feel like, um, you know, I'm lucky I have my wife as my business partner. And um, handy, just, very handy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah she's uh, always get someone smarter than you involved. Uh, <laughs> And I have great supporters and friends like people like Steve uh, in the community. Um, but uh, yeah, you feel very much uh, on your own, um, you know, whereas I'm sure you, as you said, Stephen, you have this team behind you, right? Which is really yeah. kind of cool that, that are all pushing for you and wanting your book to succeed. So, mm. um, you know, I think that's a distinct advantage that you have as a traditionally published author. That, but uh, now it's, it's, self-publishing and indie pubs books have got to the level where if you put two of them on a bookshelf in a bookshop i can't tell the difference you know it's not in the old days they used to be really noticeable but now some of the artists are just phenomenal and the cover design and everything you know digital technology there again has taken off a lot in the last 10 15 years that you can get an artist i could have an editor in paris 
I could have a self-published, uh, you know, the artist in Tokyo, uh, and you know, and it's printed in wherever, and then it's on a bookshelf, and it's just a total global team that's put it together. Um, it is very tempting. There's there's some things that I want to work on that, in the future, I I don't think they would go down the traditional publishing route, just because they're a bit more risky. So I might look at self-publishing, but right now I haven't got the time. I haven't got the skills, so I'd have to learn all of that. But when when things change, there are certain projects that I'm thinking, I think that's what I'm going to do with them in the future. So I might be calling on you for help. (laughs) (laughs) Advice. I'm certainly not the expert, but there's a lot of people who know a lot more than me about self-publishing. But yeah, no, I I totally understand. But one of the reasons it's great that you're so busy is because your books have been doing so well. I mean, you you can see, you know, uh, a lot of people on social media uh, saying a lot of great things about your books, uh, you know, including me, because again, you know, I absolutely love the coward. <laughs> fantastic. Um, the Warrior is now out. Again, congratulations. Um, it's a duology, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Um, yes. So there are two books in this series. I know you've written a lot of other books prior to that. Um, but um, can you tell us, you know, how the release is going, a bit about The Warrior for those who may not have uh, read your work, and of course, a bit about The Coward uh, mm-hmm. with the preceding book? Yeah, the reception's been really good. People have been really positive. Um, I've had some great reviews from people that I, I don't read reviews, but people link me in something on social media. Occasionally I'll glance at it. Um, and those ones, thankfully, have all been positive ones. And a couple of people have, have got what I've been doing. So they've read the story, but they've dug beneath the surface. And that's that's more rewarding than anything else, I think, when someone actually gets what you're trying to do with the story. Um, so the coward as the title suggests, is about somebody who doesn't want to be a hero. I wanted to do something really different with this series, do anything that I've done before. I never wanted to repeat myself. And one of the worst questions you can ask a writer is, where do you get your ideas? Uh, But in this instance, I know where it came from and I know what I wanted to do and it all kind of came together. Um, And I wanted to write about the realities of being a hero of going essentially into battle and the after effects on someone and what that would do to a person who is essentially suffering from, from PTSD. And I, it started with fiction. I was reading a lot of stuff about fictional characters, seeing them on TV, that have come back and have suffered. Then I went into reading um, biographies of people, um, soldiers who'd gone to war, um, but also journalists because they're often there on the front line, bringing us the news, showing us what is going on in these war-torn countries. And I read a biography of a, a reporter who'd spent 10 years in kind of war-torn territories and ended up with PTSD. Then he was on um, a TV program in, in the UK on the BBC where he basically started a brand new life. He said, right, I can't do this anymore. And he left. And uh, actually he went to, it's probably a little way from, from UPL, but he went to Canada and set up a new life, um, have opened a ranch and take people out uh, grizzly bear watching, you know, take them for walks and they go looking around and see bears and stuff in the wild. And I'd read that book and uh, and I thought, yeah, I'd like to find out more. So I went on holiday with a friend to the ranch, met the guy, went for walks, looked for grizzly bears out in British Columbia in the middle of nowhere. Fantastic. So, so good. Talked to him about stuff in person. And this and a bunch of other things were swirling around my brain. And and that kind of came together with the idea of the coward, where somebody who has been on this great adventure 10 years in the past, because he was a teenager, 
who looked up to his heroes who come through and wanted to be just like them. They were rich and famous and have the adoration of everybody. And he's like, Oh, I want that. I want a bit of that. Yeah. Why, why wouldn't I be rich and famous and sit around and get people bring me drinks and food and, and brilliant. Love it. Uh, and he did it at 17 with them, except everybody else on the adventure died apart from him. So he came back as a sole survivor and everyone still sings songs about it saying, Oh, it was great. It was all fantastic, but it's, it's not the truth. It's not the whole story. And he was left essentially with PTSD. And he spent the last 10 years living a quiet life out of the spotlight, trying to come to terms with what's happened to him. And the story of the coward actually begins with something else taking up residence in the castle in the frozen north. And the king's like, well, you've done it once. Come on. Off you go. Do it again. And he's like, I really, really don't want to go there again. Um, so it is a quest adventure book. With a fan family, it is him having to go on to this uh, journey again, but also he's uncovering the truth about what actually happened because he is the only survivor. So is what he remembers wholly accurate? Is it the whole truth? How much of the story is in his brain that people have been singing in all the taverns for 10 years? And did it happen? How reliable is, is his memory? And at the same time, you've got all these people still saying, oh, you're great, you're brilliant, you've done fantastic things. And he's thinking, well, you don't know the whole story. So that was The Coward. It's the adventure of, of going in and facing his demons and coming to terms with everything that happened. Um, the Warrior is a completely different story. Um, same main character. I can't give too much away without spoiling it, but I have got a pitch line that I can say. <laughs> okay, ready? Ready. It's The Wizard of Oz in the upside down so if you've seen stranger things there's the pitch line wow. there you go <laughs> <laughs> that was totally different adventure it is another quest book i know it's a trope arts on purpose that's 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 the warrior that's basically it in a nutshell wow that's amazing um i you know, again i can't wait to read the warrior here i have my tbr love the coward um i had the honor of uh having Stephen uh, uh, do six elemental interviews uh, for me with my, uh, for my, for my website and uh, before we go blog it. And we know my favorite character. She's amazing. Um, <laughs> can, can you talk about um, the religious aspect in, 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 in the coward a little bit, but I'll give away too many spoilers because like I said, I, it was one of the, 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 the aspects of this book that I just, it was incredibly well done, just phenomenal. Right? The main character, so that character is so <clears throat> divisive. I get so many comments from people saying, oh, I hate her, I absolutely hate her. She's the worst character. And some people saying she's the most interesting. So this is Reverend Mother Brightak, who, <laughs> so I, people say she's the villain. And I'm like, well, is she? And this is where you kind of have to play with you know, perspective. So from, she's, a, so she's a, quite a mature woman who rule, uh, um, is the leader of the church and in the five kingdoms and she's lived you know 50 60 70 years now at this point when the story's taking place so she's seen a lot in her lifetime and like our world she's seen the weather change it gets worse for a few years and it gets better crops have a go through a blight and then the next year things get better and, and it, this kind of happens and she doesn't believe in the supernatural she thinks it's all nonsense she believes in what people can see and feel and that working together and helping your neighbors and being a community is the right way to live and by serving each other, you serve the greater good. So all of the principles that she believes are true, 
it's how she goes about executing them that some people say are questionable and what she's willing to do to pursue uh, her agenda and further her cause of uh, making people work together. So she was around 10 years before when Kel went on this quest. But her her viewpoint is this, and 12 heroes and this boy go to the north and he's the only one that come back, comes back. And he tells this story. No one else can kind of corroborate it. And then the weather changes for the better. And for all anybody else knows, there was no great threat in the north. It went up there, got drunk, died on the ice, came home, the weather changed. And oh, look, miraculously, things have got better. And he made up something. So from her point of view, it's complete nonsense. And she's saying, right, well, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't hero worship this guy. You should look after your neighbor, look after your friend, help your community. And then 10 years later, the weather takes a turn again for the worst. Just like, we've done this. This happened 10 years ago. It's not him. It's nothing supernatural. It's nothing to do with any of that. We just pulled together. Yes, it was a bad hot crop this year. We should all work together. And everyone else is looking to someone else to solve their problems. So from her perspective of saying, why are you looking to one person to solve everything for you? Why don't you work together with your friends? Why don't you help your community? Surely that's the right thing to do instead of putting all your hopes and dreams on this one person to kill this fictional supernatural thing that nobody else has ever seen. So in that perspective, it makes perfect sense. It's how she goes about it that some people struggle with. <laughs> some people hate her though. They absolutely detest her, um, which is fair. <laughs> she's, a, she's an awesome character. Uh, one of my favorite recent characters in fiction. You've made a she's completely a memorable, very memorable. <laughs> Character. And I love those characters that are, mm -hmm. you know, shall we say, um, at best morally gray. Um, you know, I, 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 Steve, I know Steve, you love those uh, ambiguous characters like that, that, uh, you know, we're not really quite sure where they fall on the spectrum of good versus evil. And again, questionable methods and justifies the means kind of thing. Yeah, I love those. Steve, you, you like those characters oh, too, yeah. right? I think I think Steve, you would uh, very much enjoy the coward in the vein of things like uh, the darkness that comes before and mm. and uh, Court of Broken Knives. Those characters that just you know, mm. yeah, yeah, they're uh, you can't stop <laughs> talking about them. So, <laughs> what is that like for you as an author to hear a reaction, whether it's good or it's bad, about a character, uh, whether they love a character or hate a character? What is that like? It's 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 rewarding when people get what you're trying to do with the character too. If, if someone buys the book, great, I'm happy. If they read it and they understand what you're doing with the, the story in particular or with a character, that's even better. And when they look at a character and think, okay, well, why are they doing this thing? What does it mean? But when someone hates a character, it's, it's good in some ways because they're so invested in something that I've created completely from my imagination. They have such a visceral reaction. You want that. You don't want just book was all right. Characters, yeah, we're all right. So if I can give someone any kind of a strong emotional response to any character, positive or negative, then I've done my job. I've done my job well. <laughs> and they stick in their mind, hopefully, the characters. So that's how, that's how, I like that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the River Mother was she's she's in my she's in the back of my head for a bit. So 
<laughs> she got to you, man. She yeah, got, she got me. me. <laughs> you can tell. Um, so uh, can you tell us a bit more about your other work? Because, you know, you do have quite a body of work that, that mm. predates um, The Coward and, and The Warriors, so, um, which I still have to get into, obviously, all my TBR. Um, you know, can you talk about uh, a lot of your other works? Yeah, yeah. So my uh, debut um, trilogy started with Orbit Books in 2015. Um, and what they did as a debut author, which they did with me and, and they've done with other debut authors, is they give me a longer lead time up front. Uh, typically, traditionally published books will come out one book a year in a series. Um, but with debut authors, what they had done, and they're still done, done with some, is they accelerated the release schedule. So book came out every six months because, you know, a book comes out and someone goes, oh, brilliant, when's the next one? And like a year, and like, all right, well, I'll try and remember. But it can be difficult if you don't set a reminder or something. But equally, some people don't discover the book the day it comes out. So they could have heard about my book three months in and they go, when's the next book? Three months time. Oh, brilliant. Whereas if it's like nine months, well, I'll, I'll try and remember. Um, so my debut was Battle Mage. And that was the first of um, the Age of uh, Darkness trilogy. And I did something fairly atypical with that first trilogy. There again, some people like it, some people hate it. You can't can't really do anything about that. Um, so I did three books that are connected, that um, connect that run after each other, um, but they're all quite different stories. And to some degree, they're self-contained in some ways, and in some degrees. They're different genres. So the first book is a war book. It starts with essentially what is a first world war within this uh, totally different setting to the Caribbean Warrior, totally different place. And I, I'd been, so before I wrote this book, I had been reading a lot of fantasy and I've always been reading it. And there seemed to be a slight embarrassment about having fantastic elements. Like you get a hundred pages in and it could be, it felt like medieval fiction. And then suddenly like a dragon pops up and like, oh wait, so this is real fantasy. And I'm like, I want something that's absolutely fantastic from page one. I wanna see weird non-human races. I want over magic. I want creepy and disturbing supernatural things straight away. So I wrote the kind of book that I wanted to read that I wasn't seeing enough of. Um, so the first book is this huge war that's taking place. You've got three distinct points of view. You've got a frontline warrior who basically, he doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know what's happening with the politics. He doesn't know his daily grind is fighting, surviving, trusting his friends, getting through the battle. You've got um, a princess who's at the polit political level and she's working about, you know, she's working with numbers. She's working with the politics. She's working with the tactics and negotiations and spies and all this kind of stuff. And then you've got the battle mages, and these are the kind of heavy artillery, the heavy weaponry. There's not that many of them now. They're sort of a dying breed, but they're very, very overt magic. And this war starts coming together, and in the West, these nations are gathering. And so the king on the kind of the east side puts out a call for battle mages to come and, and help him. Because if he, if he doesn't do that, and the other side have got battle mages, there is no war. They'll just stand out there and pull down lightning and blow up the, all the soldiers before they get within firing range and the war's over. So he puts that request and a number of different battle mages come and answer the call. And this first book is all about this massive clash with these three different perspectives working together. And there are other stories and other things creeping in 
there's some supernatural elements there's some slight lovecraftian elements creeping around in the background um there's a couple of there's there's gods walking around as people as well um so it's a very big book it's very very kind of verbose and there's lots going on and normally you'd build towards that in a trilogy like you know you'd get bigger and bigger and the third one would be this i went the other way <laughs> so i started with this massive clash and this massive battle and then the second book um blood mage is all focused on one city it's more of a crime novel you've got warring families that are like uh, different groups negotiating with each other to keep the peace who will go organize crime um, you've got a serial killer running around the city. You've got people who are essentially like investigative cops trying to work out what's going on and keep the peace between the families and work out who's doing all these weird, weird killings. Um, there's spy stuff in that book. Um, there's some magic as well, but it's not nearly as loud as the first book. Um, and then the third book, Chaos Mage, is a post-apocalyptic horror novel set in an abandoned city on the edge of the world that something worse has taken up residence and it's killing everybody. And so some people are sent in to find out what's going on, what's happening, what does it all mean? And that book connects to the previous two. So I had characters stepping in and out of the foreground. So some in the first book step into the background on the second book and on the third book, it brings lots of things together and all kind of ties it up. Um, but they all follow and they're all connected. So when I said that three different stories, now you kind of, <laughs> now you understand. Wow. So the, I know Steve's clicking his TBR fiercely. He's trying to, because <laughs> that's that sounds right up his alley, right up my alley as well, of course. But wow, that sounds incredible. Um, it's um, a challenge, I'll say that. And that's that's your first one. Now you have another successive sort of books after that. So Yes. So I, I wrote that trilogy and the books came out every six months. So in 12 calendar months, um, the, the first trilogy was out, it was done. Um, so I then wrote a prequel, a novella. So it's ebook and audiobook only. So it's a kind of a way to ease people into the world if they're not sure, if they want to get a taste, they can read the prequel novella, it sets up some things and then it feeds straight into Battle Mage. And at the same time as that, I planned a second trilogy with Orbit set within the same world. And it takes place um, 10 years after the events of Bat of, of uh, Chaos Mage, which is the third book. So you have this first trilogy, a 10-year gap, and then the second trilogy. And this time I did more of a traditional trilogy in that it's one massive story with the same main characters, but with more points of view, um, kind of cut into three, but equally trying to make them stand as good stories by themselves as well. So there's six books and the prequel novella, all set within the same world with lots of magic. And after all of that, I'm like, and they've all got the word mage in the title. So like, okay, I'm done with majors for now. I need a break. I need a reset. I need a rest. I need something different. Hence why there is some magic in the coward, but it's not nearly as loud or as kind of like in your face. So I don't want to be the mage guy, you know, from now on. <laughs> 27 books, all the word mage in the title. Oh, God. Well, if they're selling, man, I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I something. We, did, we started coming up with all sorts of random ones, just because we were running out of names like Pineapple Mage, uh, Banana Mage, uh, and my favorite, From Age. So <laughs> just for the French fans, you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, um, so can you tell us the Warriors? Oh no, um, can you tell us a bit if you can give us any hints? You may not be able to disclose everything, but so what's what's what are the next projects coming uh, from from Stephen Harriet? So I am I am working on something new. It is a new series. It's not set within the same world again, so it's completely different to all of the previous ones. Um, I am 90,000 words into book two of this uh, series. And in October this year, there will be an announcement of the new series, which kicks off next year. So that's about that's about all I can tell you, really. It's, it, I said I never want to do the same thing twice, and I haven't. But I've challenged myself, and halfway through writing the first book, I thought, why am I doing this to myself? Why didn't I make this easy? Why am I just giving myself a rod for my own back? So, yeah, new series starts next year in, in the summer. Um, but, yeah, in October. So you've got mm, less than a month now to wait, and then there'll be an announcement. So there you go. Wow. Exclusive for you, I think, maybe. Oh, so yeah. that's Steve, you got an exclusive. <laughs> take that exclusive. I'll take that. I'll take that. <laughs> when uh, when the coward was finished, did you uh, send a copy to the journalist that you visited up in Canada? And yes. So what was their reaction? Um, I haven't heard back from him. Because <laughs> because I'd worked on it um and it was I think it was originally we were going to put it out in 2020, but then of course events happened, mm -hmm. so we delayed the coward coming out to 2021, and the warrior came out in 2022. So I did send a copy, but I haven't heard heard back. Um, it's one of these things where I'm sure they may have read it, I'm sure they may have glanced at it, um, but um, it's something to uh, I'll have to drop an email and see see what, how they're getting on, and see if they read it. <laughs> Did you like Canada? I love it. So I went back. I went back again to the same place. Um, it's it's one of my favourite countries to visit. I explored tons of of inner British Columbia. Uh, love Vancouver as a city. Fantastic. Um, walked around Stanley Park. Did all of that. Did the tourist things. Explored. I now fairly confidently could walk around Vancouver and not get lost. I feel like you know I understand the way they lay out the city. Um, um, I went on the ferry across to the Victoria, island. Victoria. Uh, yeah. No, sorry, no, with the brewery um, just across the water. Oh, in, um, oh okay. Uh, um, yeah, think of it. You think of it in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so we did that. We walked around, did all the tourist things, and explored the city, and had a great time. Um, but yeah, I love. I, but now that I need to go and explore more. I've been to Toronto. Okay. Um, I've been to Montreal. I've been to Quebec. Um, a little bit. Um, a bit at the CN Tower. I walked across the glass floor and hated it. I did it. I've done it. I've done it. <laughs> I'm afraid of heights, but I did it. Um, but yeah, there's a lot more in between that I need to explore now. Um, and you're very close to Toronto because you've got an event coming up, haven't you, PL? Very soon. Uh, yeah. I, I was um, asking you about this. I'm like, oh, London. When it said London, I thought, wait, you're coming here? You're coming yeah. to London? <laughs> Not planned, but plans for the UK in 2024. I, I, I plan oh, to get up there. Glasgow? You're going to come from Wales? Yeah, I'm th we're thinking about uh, World Cup, but also to see a lot of my author friends that, that are in the UK, you know, which nice. is best to have 
have a lot. So hopefully, you know, if you're if if, if I'm passing through your area, we can, hey, I, can meet I'm up for a pint. Go to Worldcon. Worldcon is okay. is the one to go to. If you're ever going to go to one of these ones that's international, it is the one because we get. So we do get um, some international authors and fans that come to our kind of conventions, and they're a lot smaller than you have out in America and Canada. But for a Worldcon, you get a lot more people coming from America, Canada, and all across Europe and, and the Far East and, and, and further beyond. So uh, I think 2024 is going to be really special in Glasgow. Um, okay. The tickets are selling like crazy already. Um, but they're not going to sell out. But I'm just sort of saying, you know, there's going to be a big gathering of science fiction and fantasy people. And so if you're ever thinking about it, start saving now yeah. you know, for Glasgow to, to come in 2024 and you'll have a blast. It'll just be so much fun. Deb and I were just looking at today. Steve, are you in? Are you in? Come on, Steve. Maybe. Are you in? <laughs> I'll be there. PL's going to be there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Quite a few people said I was talking to Miles Cameron about that today on DMs that, yeah. about, you know, He's and coming. so, yeah, so it's going to be going to be quite the event. So, yeah, I, mine will be in London, Canada, not London, England, UK. Yeah, yeah I saw um, that. I was like, oh. Yeah, oh. That's, that's next weekend. Um, no, but, but we're looking forward to it. It'll be my first Comic-Con. I've never been to... One we had plans before, but of course the pandemic, yeah. uh, you know, happens. So I'm very excited. And and I think as authors, you know, what what do we love to do more than talk about books? Not just our books, but books in general to people. Like that's that's what makes us tick, right? So yeah. uh, and to have people that are coming there generally for the love of books that just love writing, love reading, love the authors, and it's yeah, the atmosphere I'm sure is going to be phenomenal. So I'm really stoked to you know to get to one. But, there's there's uh, nothing more rewarding than being around other people in your own community who've gone through all the same struggles, who yeah. understand the process, who've written books, who've been rejected, who've, you know, had the awful emails from a fan or something or the social media interactions that aren't good. Because they've, they've gone through all of these things and they get it and they understand it. And as much as friends and family want to sympathize and can be sympathetic, at some point they're just like, Oh, wait, can you get off that thing? Can you stop going on about it? And the, the patience just kind of runs out. But another author's like, yes, I get that. I understand that. I've had that. Oh, and it's just, okay, I feel good now. I can I can relax. So, yeah. yeah, we're a bit of a different breed, but but that's not a bad thing. Um, no. You know, and, um, you know, again, like, as I said, the community is so supportive. Um bloggers, booktubers, podcasters, authors, like, you know, it's very collegial with this, you know, kind of this big, happy, dysfunctional family. And, you know, um, you know, yeah, I, I, there, there's, there's no other community I'd, I'd rather be a part of. So, you know, well, next, uh, you've got, uh, so the same weekend that you're in London, I'm going to the other London for uh, fantasy con. Um, uh, and so we've got a bunch of people coming over for that from, from all around the world and some, uh, so Ryan Cahill's coming over from yeah. New yeah. Zealand. Fantastic. Zach Argyle and oh. his wife, Bookborn, are coming over from America. Wow. Um, we've got a load of British and science, you know, science fiction fantasy fa authors. Adrian Tchaikovsky's going to be oh. there. Um, I, I could go down the list. There's a ton of people going to be there. Um, Sarah El Arifi's going to oh. be there. Oh, wow. um, she has the same agent as me, actually. Um, people coming down from Scotland. Um, so it's going to be good it's gonna be good fun um at a hotel near heathrow airport basically that's where we'll be in london um so propping up the bar maybe, <laughs> maybe. That, sounds, that sounds phenomenal yeah we, we had ryan on the show a bit a bit back he's a great friend granted friend of the show and we had zach and book one as well and there you go. wonderful 
wonderful people. So, you know, great people. They do so much uh, for the community. So, yeah, so that that's going to be a, that's going to be quite the party. That's going to be quite the quite the gathering. Yeah, I didn't think some of them would come over for for, you know, but they're coming. So, it's going to be it's going to be good fun. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Sorry, Steve, you were saying something? Oh, no, I was in a, uh, speaking of authors and, you know, having the same things in common, you've interviewed a lot of authors on your channel. Mm. And what's something that, that you've discovered or that a light went off in your in your mind when you've spoken to another author that you hadn't thought of before? Well, that's a good question. Um, I find we find a lot of things in common um, whenever we talk to them. That, that's, that always comes up. Mm. Um, but the the most interesting thing I, I I think I find every time I talk to an author, the story is never completely the same. It's never just I wrote a book, I sent it off to an agent, I got a book deal, and then it got published. There's there's always some kink. There's always something that happens, some speed bump or something that you could never have anticipated. Um, so it it could be like when I spoke to Jonathan French, he'd self published his book. It was out there and. Then SPFBO came up and he sent his book in and he won. And it's like, oh, brilliant. Well, more promotion, great attention for his book. And then Orbit were like, right, now do you want a, do you want a book deal? And so then he's gone traditionally publishing room. And it's like, I never could have anticipated that. Like, how was that? That was never the plan. That was never part of the, the, go the goal. It just kind of happened. And you keep hearing these things. Like some of the people who didn't even win SPFBO, who are like second, third or something, they've gained so much attention or their books have been so popular that they've then been picked up. Like didn't Josiah Bancroft come second yeah. one year and the books of Babel have been phenomenal. They've had so much attention and he's got a new series coming out next year or later this year. Um, so it's, it's never, it's never straightforward. Now you know, the, the way the normal way to do it is write a book, send it out to agents and then hope and pray and try. But there's so many things that, you can't control luck, timing, and you just have to kind of hope. And those things are constantly surprising me, like how something happened that, that a person knew a person who mentioned it to a friend or whatever, and then that got in front of an agent. Or, you know, it's just... Oh, so, like, I this week I interviewed Stacey McEwen, whose debut novel, Ledge, is coming out from Angry Robot this month. She... Um, started doing these funny videos on um, TikTok and on BookTok. She's very, very popular. She's now at like 300,000 followers on wow. on TikTok. Wow. And she was just having a lot of fun. And and she, and she her husband kind of said, so what are you going to do with this? And she's like, well, I'm, I'm just having fun. Maybe I'll get some free books. People get free books. I can get free books. And so why don't you put one of your books in front of these people and see what happens? <laughs> she's like, hey, that's a, that's a really good idea. I'm going to take the credit for that. Um, so she started talking about something that she'd worked on and people like we'd like we'd like to see that can we can we see that so this is like right well I'll I'll self publish this and if if a fraction of that 300,000 people buy the book yeah. good I'm happy and it was through this kind of promotion thing and talking about it that and what like several people got in touch with it including publishers including a literary agent that said I'd be interested in representing you so there again, no way she could have anticipated that, that any of this could have happened. Uh, her story of how she's, you know, her debut comes out in the next few days, just by, yeah, I'll join TikTok because the pandemic's on and I'm sat at home, can't go out, can't work, I need distraction, need something to do. 
let's explore this book talk thing. What is it? Oh, it's a great community. People are really positive about books. And and then here we are, like two years later. Yeah, that's just incredible. Oh. Uh, and Shad said, I recently read The Warrior. Yeah, quite enjoyed it. Thanks. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Yeah, the um, the stories, as you said, Stephen, like, um, especially coming out of, of things like Mark Lawrence's self-published fantasy blog on SPFPO, you know, mm-hmm. again, the list goes on, Josiah Bancroft, Devin Madsen, uh, yes. Justin Lee Anderson, um, mm-hmm. you know, you can name probably by now at least 10 or more authors that, like you said, they, not, they haven't all won. Some have been semi-finalists or finalists, and as a result, on the heels of that, some of them were unagented when they were in the contest, and then boom, an agent, an agent lashed onto them. Next thing you know, they had a book deal. Yeah. Um, you know, I think one of the most compelling ones too is that I hope to, you know, one day I'm going to try and knock on his door and get him on the show as well. Steve and I, Evan Winter, apparently he, um, he self, I don't know. I don't want to speak out of turn. I don't know the whole story, but from what I understand, he self-published his books. And he was he was very popular on Reddit on our fantasy, mm-hmm. and then an agent was 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 who was typically look was on our fantasy saw what he was doing saw the popularity and then said hey you know uh, you know we you know want to represent you and then now you know obviously he's he's quite quite a popular um, so so like you said these stories are just you know incredible I don't know as you said. As you mentioned about the way the, the industry's gone, I don't know if this would have happened 15 years ago. Um, mm, you know no. the way, like, but but yeah, just phenomenal uh, with this this transition stuff from self to traditional, and then as you said, to hybrid and back and forth, and you yeah, know, yeah. I, yeah. And I think I'm not mistaken when Jonathan French was on the show um, with Steve. He, sorry, not on page two. It was a, it was a separate interview that mm. Steve did with him. He was mentioning the same thing that you know like. You know that's that seems to be the new reality. This 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 transition back and forth between yeah. these these venues. Hey Austin. Hey Austin. Yeah, there's there's a lot of people crossing over. There's a lot of people who do both, self-publish and 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 uh, get traditional deals as well, and keep doing both. Like I, I've not spoken to him. I've seen other interviews with him, but Michael R. Fletcher has had traditional publishing books. And I know he self-publishes books too himself, so he's kind of done done both at this point too, um, and uh, it's it's just it's more common than it ever was before. And all good things for for publishing, for books, for readers. These are all things that are positives, you know. Mm-hmm. And 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 I think that's one thing I learned from watching specifically Stephen your broadcasts is you always leave with that positive, right? Regardless of you know yeah. whether you, you know you you bash you bash. Some sensitive people about about why they should <laughs> should listen to all these crazy rumors, but at the same time, you know, you, you give us some wisdom and you leave us with with a positive about you know, hey, it's more important about getting the right information, yeah. knowing what you're doing and going forward, rather than listening to a lot of spinning over a lot of of, of, of stuff that that's filling your head, right? Because that just gets in the way of you writing and publishing your books, right? So, yeah people get caught up on some of the wrong things or they get caught up on things way too early. Like they start worrying about pen names and, you know, I'm like, I'm like, have you got the book? Is it finished? Well, no. Have you got an agent? No. Well, let's, let's not get, let's not do that yet now. You know, let's not, let's not get caught up on that. Or so it's just really random things that people get caught or they, or they fall into different traps with writing a book. Like they're trying to make it perfect or whatever that means. 
and it's like a book is never perfect it's never done it, it, it's it's just you've just put it down basically you could keep tinkering with it forever and it'd never be completely happy with it you have to kind of just leave it and move on and go on to the next book and that's that's basically it you know at this point like yeah can you describe a bit what that whole process is like when you you know um you you write a book uh, from your perspective as Rishi Brock published author you come with this great idea you write a book you take it to your agent and you know like what what's the process like <laughs> oh, <that's>... exhausted yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, what's the process? So, can you run us through through the process, how that works from kind of from from start to finish, and how that all plays out? That you know, uh, I guess, especially when it comes to you know, kind of dispelling that rumor in terms of you know, your 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 publisher is going to tell you what to write. You know, how does that back and forth go with with uh, you know the editing process and and revisions and things like that? Yeah, so um, it was quite a way through my second trilogy that obviously my agent kind of came to me and so said, you know, what are you working on next? What, what ideas have you got? What have you been thinking around with? And we talked about this idea of this reluctant hero and this sort of thing. She says, Oh, that sounds quite interesting. You know, you know, if you want to write that, that sounds good. I think that's a marketable idea. I think it has potential. I think, you know, if you want, if that's what you want to pursue, that, that sounds good. So I, I've, I wrote the draft of the book sent it to my agent she read it she gave me some feedback and notes on it um and so I, I worked closely with her on it for a while some agents do this some don't some will just kind of give you a few pointers and then pass it to an editor and take it out in submission um uh, <laughs> yeah exactly um so i worked on an agent for a bit and then when she was happy with it we then uh, took it to my editor and kind of said, an angry robot, you know, would they be interested in this series? Would they be interested in this book? Um, they were on board. They loved it. Um, my two editors that I work with are Gemma and Eleanor, and they were both very, very keen. Um, I'd planned notes for The Warrior. And obviously, I, I so they had the first finished manuscript. They had my notes on The Warrior for book two. Not masses of stuff. Like, no, this is roughly what it's going to be about. And they're like, okay, great. The, the idea is we're focusing on the war on, on the coward. We'll get to that later when you've got more of it. But based upon what we you've described, that all makes sense to me, you know, to us. Then I get an initial round of edit notes from my editor or both editors. And it might, um, it'll be a lot of comments and phrases and questions in the, uh, in the margins normally on a, on like a tracked word document. Like it'll say, what do you mean by this? Or what is this? Or why is this important? <laughs> and I'll be the first to admit this. Sometimes I read a comment and I have to take a little breather. And I have to kind of walk away and then come back and go, what is she actually asking me? And if it says, you know, what is this? Then that's a, sometimes it's a case of, I haven't described it sufficiently on the page for a new reader to understand it. And there's a gap between what is in my brain and what is actually on the bit of paper you know paper and i'm like oh well of course it's this and i read the actual text and go but it doesn't say that that's why she's asking me what is this and you go oh and you put the note in and explain it. the next time they're like okay that makes sense now um sometimes it's notes about do we really need this this aspect and i know that in book two in book three it pays off or this is an important factor for other things or whatever and sometimes i'll just say yes that's yes we need it 
and then be like, okay, fine. Or if there's something that's, so I've never had this, but if there's something that was like really, really awful in the book, like you'd written something absolutely violent or something really, really horrible to a character or something, they might kind of question it and say, what what a reaction do you want from this? Is this, this is what I got. Is this the thing you're after? Does it need to be like this? Um, you know, this is, this could be changing the genre slightly. This could be changing the audience slightly. Um, be like, say, say if you'd written like a YA book and you had a really violent scene in that was really, really dark. They might come back to you and say, this is draft drifting into adult territory. Do you want to keep this? Do you want to change to an adult fantasy book? Or do you want to, you know, pair it back so it fits within the audience. So it's things like that. It's they know the market, they know the industry, they know the audience, they know what bookshops will take and how it works and where it would sit on the shelf next to other things when they sell it and promote it and market it. Um, and so I've done one normal edit. My editor come back, make the changes, send it back. Then it goes to um, a copy editor or a line editor, and this is a freelance person who usually doesn't work for the publisher they're reading it for the first time and they'll go through and do like a sanity check to make sure that everything in there works, a consistency check. Like his eyes were blue in chapter one, they're green in chapter seven and then they're red in chapter, you know, things like that. Um, if there's any gaps within the world building that I've done, like if I say something and they say, you don't actually explain what this means. I don't understand as a new reader, if there's sufficient information um, so that's, it can be quite detailed, that one, and Simon. sometimes it's not. Then you'll do a proof. This is where they'll produce a digital or physical copy of the book, how it will look on the page, with the page numbers, with your name on, everything laid out so you can see it. And at that stage, you're looking only at punctuation, grammar, and occasionally missing words. And there again, I've read the book at this point, 15, 16, 20 times. And sometimes I I just can't see it. I just can't, which is why you have to have other people read the book. You have to have other, other editors come in and say, oh, there's a word missing here. And they look at you like, oh yeah, there is. Yeah, I can't see that, but I, I know what it should say. And so because I've read it so many times, I can't see it. And so you learn all these tricks to like, try and spot things like change the font of the entire book. And then when you try and start reading it, it shifts slightly in your brain and it, it's easy to find missing words. Um, you know, you can run it through things, various programs, look for missing words and typos. And um, and so once the proofread is done, then they'll produce arcs, uh, physical advanced reading copies or um, digital ones that will be sent out to various um, uh, bloggers, websites, YouTube channels, um, um, like the library journals, um, Publishers Weekly, and a bunch of others who get it months and months ahead for them to read it, hopefully do a review. Um, and I've been working with the cover artist and the publisher during this whole process, going back and forth on different designs, different ideas. I will have decided upon who will do the audiobook as well. They'll record a number of samples from maybe half a dozen people. And what, normally, what they normally do is say, we've got a favorite, we're not gonna tell you which one it is, but here, listen to the samples and you pick your favorite. And I, for the Coward and the Warrior, um, this, <laughs> this this story doesn't make me look good, but it's true. Um, he'd done a, a sample from chapter one and hearing it, it made me laugh, but it's my own material. But just the way he, he tweaked, uh, so the audio narrator, Matt Wycliffe, it's fantastic. And listening to him 
little pauses and little things that he put in made me laugh. And I'm like, this guy, is, he's brilliant. And they're like, he was our favorite too. So, <laughs> so that worked out. Um, so you, you're constantly doing lots of different things at the same time. You're doing the edits, you're doing the cover, you're working on the audiobook stuff. And whilst this is going on, I've started writing book two during this process. Even though a book comes out one book a year and it takes many months to go through the kind of the machine with traditional publishing, I've already started on book two, I have. Like some people are saying, oh, when you write, when book one came out, did it affect how you wrote book two? And my answer is always, no, I'm six months down the line. I'm like two thirds of the way through the book or I'm nearly finished. It's like, has no impact. Reviews have no impact on how I'm writing the next book because I'm already well into it. Um, yeah, the advanced copies go out, get reviews, get feedback. And then the actual book starts coming out, digital audio, physical copies in bookshops start arranging PR, start doing events, start doing promotions, signings, going to conventions, all that kind of stuff. And then you start again. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the name of the game. That's that's the business. That's the industry. Uh, Carl had a comment. I'd love to put what I read out there, but I don't know my own ability level. I'll keep it what I do. I'll keep what I do fun and not make it a chore. Mm. Um, yeah, getting feedback from other people, I think, is critical at that point. Join, join a writing group online or local, get feedback from your peers. So with hindsight, hindsight, I know my early books when I was first submitting in that 10-year period were terrible. I know that there was a reason they didn't get picked up, but I, I had to work through a number of awful books to get to something that was probably marketable. Some people come out the gate, and I've read first books, first drafts from some people who are you know, in their, in their early 20s or early 30s, and they're so good. They, they've just achieved a level that I hadn't, I did not have at their age, because um, we're all we're all different. That's the other thing. I've I've seen debut authors in their twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, and sixties. So age is not a factor either, and it's not a barrier to being traditionally published. Um, that's another misconception. I'm always happy to to debunk. That's amazing. Um, I I know I'm obviously. What did Carl say there? Uh, Carl said, even what's being said here, all the effort and so on, such a difficult business. It is. I, I always say this, whether you do traditional or self-published, it's it's a hard, it's hard to do it. It's hard to get into it. It's hard to produce books, take the blows, take the rejections, take the knockbacks and keep going. Um, and just, but I, I, I love what I do. I love writing. I love the process of writing. Some people say I love having written I, I can kind of understand it, but that's just not me. Like, if I didn't enjoy doing a thing, why would I do the thing? Like, I don't like play. So, I don't like playing football, soccer, as you call it. I don't like it. I don't want to do it, so I don't do it. You know, it's like I don't enjoy a match after it's over. We go, oh, I like the score. Yeah, that was great. So, I, I just love the process of building and writing and spending time in worlds and creating characters and playing around with things. Um, you know, the editing process. Is, is okay, but it's not my favorite part, actually writing that, the book, yeah? Same with you, PL. Same here, same here, definitely. Uh, and, and and yes, while I enjoy the finished product, like you, Stephen, there's something, that creative process of when I'm there and I'm, you know, it's late at night and I'm pounding away and I, something just came to, oh, I, I, this this works out perfectly. This subplot, if I tied it with this and like that, mm -hmm. the high you get off of that, I, I there's nothing I can I've ever done that has replicated that. No, it's incomparable. It's incomparable. Like sometimes your subconscious mind is a lot smarter than you. I've written things 
I'm, I'm looking at the time. I'm like, I'm not really sure why that's there. And then later on, you get further down the book, and you go, Of course, yes, right. Oh god, I start hammering away, and it just, yeah, it, it is. It is a drug, definitely. It's a high of creative worlds and characters and destroying them and great and wonderful stories and building something but making it feel real in the mind of the reader that that is fantastic it, it can't be replicated no i agree because it's always real in our minds right we we live in our characters heads mm -hmm. we live in these worlds ourselves and we know everything about them but as you said it's to trans it's to get them on page and translate them to the reader in, in a way that they feel that way that's yeah that's a, yeah that's a special feeling so and you've obviously done that as i said i you know love the coward <laughs> can't wait to get to the to, to the warrior and the rest of your works it's so so many books and so so little time that's probably my you know my biggest complaint because between my own writing and my own full-time job and my mm -hmm. family and all that like you know i would love to be able to read you know 500 books a year but that is never going to happen, right? Even no. if it's again. So no, I'm I'm not a very fast reader to begin with. I I just I, that that's this is part of my to read pile behind me up here. There's more <laughs> there's more on the floor. There's more down there. Um, and there's always great books coming out that I want to read, and I'm like, yeah, oh, brilliant, I get it. And then it sits on the shelf. And I'm thinking, ah, oh. but like you, you know, job and writing and family and other commitments and relax having relaxation time. Yeah. What's that? It's important. What's that? It's important. Sleep. Sleep. That's the other thing. It's uh, <laughs> finding time for all of these things and juggling everything constantly is. Uh, it does take hard effort. So it's yeah, hard work. So. What are some uh, What are some books you've read recently that you really loved? Oh God. So let me think. Um, Black Tongue Thief by Christopher Buhlman. That was fantastic. It's one of the funniest, most creative, wild books that I've read in a long time. Um, I read the Winter Night Trilogy by Catherine Arden. Um, really enjoyed that. Um, that was really, really good. Um, I read some non-science fiction fantasy books too, as well. I know, radical, weird, you know. Um, <laughs> um, I've read some Jack Reacher Lee Childs books recently. I've read another um, uh, Jeff Lindsay Dexter book one of those i'm reading my way through those gradually um i've got a few biographies that i'm itching to get to so at the moment my current read is drawing of three dark tower so i've read almost every stephen king book out there except for the dark tower it's my gap i read the gunslinger 15 years ago and for whatever reason i just never carried on and finished it now i've got i got the box set for christmas so i'm on book two doing that uh then i'll do some biographies uh my next book is storyteller by dave grohl um i've got the matthew mcconaughey one to read on my to read pile um i read uh brad i'm still reading my way through bradley bullier's um song of the shattered sands which is fantastic it's one of the most spectacular world building series i always go on about it because it is so so good I really enjoyed Jonathan French's, French's uh, Grey Bastard series. That's so good. And there's so many layers to that as well. Like people think it's a really simple story. Yeah. And I spoke about this. You start digging into the races and the things he's done with them. Like I've never seen anybody do that in fantasy. And I've been reading fantasy my entire life. He's done things with halflings and centaurs. I'm like, nobody's yeah. done yeah. Yeah. Like, nobody. Yeah. yeah. 
And why are there not more centaurs running around fantasy? <laughs> why, why is nobody doing it? Why, like elves, yeah, orcs, yeah, there's loads of them. Yeah, every all the time. Centaurs, people, come on. More yeah, centaurs. Raving mad centaurs. <laughs> <laughs> really mad centaurs. Yeah. Crazy wild centaurs. Um, I've been reading my way through some Robin Hobb. I'm still working on those. Um, oh, let's have a look. What else have I got? Um, oh, Anthony Ryan. I'm reading his yeah. Draconis Memoriam hmm. trilogy. I've got book two and three there to read. I'm going to say this because he's been on my, my, my back to read it. Jeremy Zal. Yes, Jeremy. I'm going to read it. It's here. It's there. I'm going to read it very soon. I will. Uh, Justice of Kings, Richard Swan. That was really, really good. Phenomenal debut. Um, the list just goes on and on. It's, uh, you know, there's so, so many. But I'm, I'm behind. Like I was saying before, I've just picked up Among Thieves by MJ Kuhn. Came out a year ago. I'm, I was like, oh, brilliant. I'll get that. And it just slipped my mind for whatever reason. But I have it now. I have it to read. I will read it. And maybe I'll get her on to do a talk at some point and talk about that. So, yes. That's well, what what writers influenced you? So, you Steve Steve's question was was about um, you know what you've been reading, what, what you found was good. So, back when you started writing, what were the who were the writers you, you thought okay, I'd love to write like that, or who you admired and, and looked up to as in in writing. So growing up, um, my influences were, Tolkien obviously was there because he was part of it, but I read uh, David Eddings, Terry Brooks. I loved the early Shannara books, um, Weiss and Hickman. Um, Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman did the Dragonlance novels. And back then they weren't what they are now. They're kind of, you know, this massive kind of thing. The other thing I should point out is in the UK, the name Tracy is only used for women. So, I believed that Margaret Rice and Tracy Hickam were two fantasy women who'd written this series. I thought, brilliant. Fantastic. Um, Ursula Le Guin, the Earthsea books with Ged, they were a massive influence on me. And when I got to my teenage years, it was David Gemmell and James Barclay. And David Gemmell's probably the biggest influence on me and my work. Um, he absolutely shaped my work. because he, He's a master... He passed away a number of years ago now, but um, he's a master at doing really tight, really lean prose, and he can do a fantastic novel in 400 pages um, of great adventure, great epic fantasy. And he's got about 35 books out, probably. Um, I met him once at an event, and that was a very special moment, got a signed book from him. And some a couple of people have said my books echo some of his and they like feel a little bit like his. And I take that as an enormous compliment, uh, any comparison to him. Um, James Barkley, who was a friend of David Gemmell's. Um, he's also written some fantastic books about the Raven through a group of mercenaries. And there again, it was what I loved. It was over magic. It was really in your face and loud and gray characters. And that's all the stuff I wanted. And that fed into my own work too. So there's the early kind of stuff that was a bit shinier. It was a bit simpler. And as I got into my teenage years, it was definitely Gemmell and uh, and Barclay that were the two biggest influences. And, you know, later on, I read, you know, Abercrombie and George R. R. Martin. But by that point, I was already on the path. I was already writing. I was already doing my own thing. Um, it was, yeah, those are the biggest ones, I'd say. Was there ever an author that you've interviewed that you were a little nervous to interview? <laughs> um, hmm. Maybe Miles Cameron. <laughs> Miles slash Christian Cameron. Because 
that guy has lived. He's been everywhere. He's done it. Um, he's coming over here to a convention in October, actually. Yes. So I'll get to meet him in person for the first time at that. Um, but you ask someone a question, you're like, I really don't want to sound stupid. I really want to sound like I know what I'm talking about. So I did more homework, I think, on that interview than anybody else uh, for talking about his sci-fi book, Artifact Space, which was fantastic. Mm -hmm. But at this point, he's written 25 books yeah. or something yeah. or more. And what he has forgotten about fighting and weapons and yes. history, I can't even imagine yeah. compared to what I know. So, um, yeah, probably him. He's probably the most nervous, I'd say. What a wonderful guy. Uh, we we had him on Paige Turing, honored to call him a friend. And uh, uh, he um, we dubbed him the most interesting man in the world. It was the Saki's commercial. And he's that guy. Because mm -hmm. like you said, Stephanie, he's been there, done that. You know, the guy's been in NCIS. He's like, yeah, he's, he's <laughs> yeah, he's, it's crazy. His background just, you know, but such a wonderful guy. Yeah. He's just a really warm, you know, caring, wonderful guy too. So lovely guy. Yeah. You know. Uh, hoping to meet up with him soon, uh, but yeah, it, it, it's um, it's funny how we all have our, you know, we all have these writers that for us are iconic, and you know, um, we all look up to, and you know, uh, I remember for me it was Jenny Wirtz, like when 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 we yes. had Jenny Wirtz, and now you know Jenny's a friend, I talk to her regularly. It's like, oh my gosh, it's Jenny, you know, it's Jenny mm -hmm. Wirtz, like mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And you just have that fanboy moment, you're just like you're gushing, and and you know tongue-tied because you know um you know just so impressed by them and yeah it's 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 so no matter you know what how successful we we are as writers or become as writers we all still have those people that to us there you know you put them on a pedestal right so yes i'll tell you one one funny story so um it would be about 2019 i think or 2018 myself and a number of other english american canadian um, fantasy or sci-fi authors were invited to a French festival. Our books have been translated into French, so we were there at this festival. And uh, when you weren't on panels, you sat in the big marquee at the table and you know, signed your books. People come up and get your signed books. I uh, I spent three days in this huge marquee in the middle of France, sat between Christopher Priest, the prestige Christopher Priest, that guy, yes, him, and on the other side, Stephen Erickson. Wow. <laughs> and there's me like this. And there's this massive queue for these two guys that I'm sat there. No, I'm not their PA. No, no. No, I wrote that book. Yeah, that's my book. <laughs> but to be fair, people did come up and get my, you know, sign my books and ask me to sign books for them. But sat between those two guys was fascinating. And just sitting and chatting to them in quiet moments a few times, you know, things go quiet and you start having a, having a bit of a chat. So, how, how are you? How's, how's things, Steve? What's, what's going on? <laughs> uh, I, I spoke briefly to Robin Hobb as well. She was at the event. Oh. Um, fantastic, lovely lady, just the kindest, sweetest, most personable person uh, lady I've ever met. Um, so yeah, I got to talk to her. Um, so <laughs> yeah, but sat between these two guys, that was an experience for sure. <laughs> yeah, he's the brain power. With I, uh, Steve had um, Stephen Erickson on on his uh, his Friday night conversations the other day. Just the 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 intellect of that man. Wow. What was that like, Steve? <laughs> uh, I was, uh, I just was very quiet and let them let him talk. That was my, that was my strategy. <laughs> yeah, just just brilliant, um, you know. But but again, as you said, Stephen, and, and you know, as we get to know these people, 
they're just like us. They're, you know, they they have a lot of the same uh, concerns as writers. You know, are my books gonna strike a chord? Are people gonna like them? You know, I'm gonna sell my next book. Well, it's it's all the same, no matter, you know, how, you know, how how you get in terms of you know success. And that's that's that that commonality there. It's really you know you don't think about it, but when you're talking, you're like, oh well, they kind of work with the same things that I do. So it's true. It's true. Which is, yeah. Which is which is phenomenal. So, but um, yeah, the uh, the time always flies on these. So before you notice, oh, you know, we're, oh we're, wow, uh, <laughs> I'll leave it but uh, but before we let you go, we wanted to ask you uh, to try to ask all of our guests. What was your first job? My first job. Oh wow. Um, mm, probably like a dishwasher, probably at a restaurant. I think washing dishes, being a busboy essentially, um, or working. Yeah, I think I was a paper boy before that. I had a paper round. So that wasn't really a job, like a part-time job. But yeah, I think I was a busboy and, and washing dishes at a, at a, a local restaurant. There you go. <laughs> what was your What was your takeaway from that, from the busboy dishwasher days? Did you learn anything that stuck with you throughout the years? Mm, so years later, I was a busboy again for like a summer, like a summer vacation I went to Vermont and worked in a a big resort and spent like 10 weeks um, studying people. I, I'm a student of people. I'm always studying them as a writer. I'm always absorbing things and being a busboy, you're kind of invisible a lot of the time mm. because the waiters they're given, taking the order. I'm just delivering the food. I'm just like a mobile trolley, basically carrying the food in and out and taking the dirty trays away and plates away. So you learn a lot about people. You get it's great for observing people, mm. and uh, when people aren't watching, you can get to, you get to see what they're really like, which is kind of fed into the coward as well. Like when the heroes, when nobody's around, Kel got to see what the heroes were like when there weren't the fans in front of them. So, all uh, yeah, I'm constantly studying people and picking up things and absorbing things, and uh, that was a good job to do that. That's the secret. So everyone who wants to become an author, go be a busboy. <laughs> there you go. Had similar, had very similar jobs: paperboy, busboy, that same mm -hmm. sort of stuff. Yeah, I think for me, it definitely uh, showed me a, a real appreciation for those jobs and for the people who do them. Um, you know, for certain that they're they're difficult. You know, waitress, wait, being a waiter, being being a waitress, being a bartender, it's difficult. To remember orders to well, like it's it's not easy. So you know, and and they work really hard. And sometimes, depending on where you work, for not a lot of pay. So yeah, mm -hmm. really, uh, really, really good good life lesson doing those jobs. So. I think so. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So uh, where can people connect with you if they want to contact you or hear more about your work? Sure, um, I'm on Twitter. I'm at Steve Arian. Uh, my website is stephen-arian.com. I'm on YouTube. Just search me on there. I've got my channel on there that's full of writing advice, but also interviews with other authors talking about how they got published, basically just to show that there isn't one way to do it. Some interesting stories that people have and talk about that. I am on Instagram, but I don't really do a lot on that. I kind of just drift in and out because I don't really understand it. Um, those, are, those are the best places. I'm not on TikTok. I, I created an account so that someone else couldn't create one with my name, but I'm not on TikTok. So Twitter is the best place. 
or, or YouTube, I would say. Yes. And Mr. P.L. Stewart, where's the best place to find you? Oh, uh, same on Twitter. It's at P.L. Stewart writes. Um, obviously with Steve and Taylor on, uh, on Steve's channel or Taylor's channel for page chewing, featuring fantastic creatives. I'm also with Steve. Uh, we're both, and Taylor, we're all bloggers with uh, Before I Go Blog, uh, led by the incredible Beth Tabler. Um, so for your reviews, your rest reviews for fantasy, sci-fi, horror, et cetera, including reviews of things, books, great books like The Coward, um, you know, check it out there. I'm an assistant editor with Before I Go Blog. And uh, my website, www.plstore.com, that's more about book-related when the next books are coming out and information, you wonder about the John Kingdom saga, uh, that's where uh, you can find it. Well, thank you so much for hanging out. I know we know it's late, getting late for you on the other side of the world. So we appreciate you taking the time out of all the other My things pleasure. you have to do. Yeah. My pleasure. It's very good fun, guys. Thank you so much, Stacey, awesome. for coming out. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for hanging out with us and uh, dropping in the comments. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. See you later, everyone.